Hey Tim. Hey, how's it going? Good. How, how are, are you? you? I'm, I'm fantastic. <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> good this us. morning. Yeah. 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 Um, are you Are you rationally pursuing your self interest today? I David? am rationally pursuing my self interest anytime fantastic. I talk to you, Tim. <laughs> if this wasn't beneficial to each of us, why would we do it? I I agree. I agree. Is there anything that isn't rationally self-interested. You just came back from an objectivist conference. Is there yeah. like a lex an objectivist lexicon of things that are rationally self-interesting and there things is, that are clearly not? Or? There is an objectivist lexicon that's called the Ayn Rand lexicon. Sure. But no, that's I don't think that list is in it. But no, the, so it's the idea that things that you do for other people first and foremost, like sacrificial things, um, are is is what is kind of indoctrinated into society it's this kind of christian altruism you should serve others and mm -hmm. that is what brings you happiness um right. so i i mean i've always been for the most part self-interested wait, wait wait a second if you're self-interested isn't it don't you want happiness yeah but it the way so, to get so happiness wouldn't it be rationally self-interest to serve other people i mean that's no, even what a free market is right i mean no you no profit, it, right Self being self-interested is what brings happiness. You people have been convinced that sacrificing for others will bring them happiness, but that's not actually true. That's the thought. If if it did bring you happiness, if you do think that, like if I think that helping others is in my interest and would bring me happiness, which I do, right? Like I want the world to be a better place for me to gotcha. live in, and so gotcha. do you, right? You're a libertarian politician because. You want the world to be better for you and your kids. That's right. more self-interest. That's self-interest rather than if you just thought, actually, you know, life's miserable, but I need to help all of these heathens be better, uh, and it doesn't benefit me at all. Um, gotcha. So, so but you do it anyways. So yeah, I guess my thinking then is is like everything we do is self self-interested like it, it can't not be like there's no nothing we can do but we can do things with the delusion that we're not being self-interested by thinking that we're being altruistic or self-sacrificial or something like that but the reality is we're we're doing that to our, for ourselves to feed our ego or to give us happiness or something like that but doing things that are delusional um lead to unhappiness yeah, or I don't mean, that, lead to happiness, right? So, so that's a good you, way to you, put it. Yeah, you see this, for example, with, um, with maybe uh, I, I know in women it, it's a big issue, and I'm trying not to be a sexist misogynist here, but I, I find that women try to please others to their own detriment, exactly, uh, more often than men, right? And so, but but they, they feel like they're living up to some standard that they they have to live up to. Um, that right, and so the, them to, and and what what they're doing is they're trying to be fit in and be socially. They're they're sacrificing themselves, I guess, or yeah. or they're they're, but but they're still being self interested in that moment. Like they they'll try to tell you that I, I do everything for other people and, and I never get any thing in return. Well, that tells me that you're trying to do it for self interested reasons, but you're, you're delusional to think that you're doing it actually for other people that you're giving of yourself and selflessly all this stuff no you're you're being self-centered here you're you're doing all these things for other people but your failure to recognize that is causing you all sorts of mental suffering well so i i have not heard it put that way i'm sure the objectivist proper would have some 
problems with that formulation because yeah like, but, but is... i guess i guess my problem with their formulation though is that it's very like it, it just seems like it's such a an abstract line like how, how do you know when you're being um when when you're being altruistic versus self-interested well i think the most important thing is introspection you have to be honest with yourself right so right. the these it's actually easiest to talk about it on the extremes right so the idea of communist collectivism right like che Guevara said like even we don't need to know uh, if someone is guilty to kill them, we just need to know it will benefit society, right? So like, right. if you're actually a full-on collectivist and, and you care about society, maybe society would be better without you in it and go kill yourself, right? Yeah. And like that is the extreme or, or Dr. House uh, has an example. Well, if you care about other people, sign your organ donor card and kill yourself, right? You can save 10 people. Um, so that's like the extreme case. But right. with, with respect, you know, it is a stereotype. And I see it with some female family members that they'll give themselves to their own detriment. I've seen this with female mm -hmm. friends, much more so than male friends. And I don't know if it's actually in their self-interest because you can kind well, of not. see, well, but, it, you, it, but you said it is. Well, they're doing it, their, their motivation is self-interested, right? And their failure to recognize that I think they're, is, so, is what's causing the suffering, I think we need to clarify self-interest because right? objectivism has this concept second-handed, right? Um, so, if you're actually like often it's more so they what they would want society or others to think of them they sacrifice mm -hmm. for their family because it looks good because their family right. would feel good um but that's second-handed that's not actually self-interest that's like self-centered second-handedness uh, which isn't a term they use but like they it's it's important to differentiate selfish and self-centered which is good in objectivism um versus requiring either like needing people to give you things or needing things of people which is like selfish second-handedness um which is more so what the average person would think of selfish um right right so it's more so like that that they being self-centered to the detriment of others versus being um, just self-centered you or, know other centered yeah. to the detriment of yourself or something right like that. and so both or, of those are second-handed and the, the former is what the average person would consider selfish. So I'm selfish if I make people do things for me. If I, um, if I you know, want power over people, then I'm selfish. But that's actually right. not selfish. That's second-handed. Um, gotcha. And so there's the really good example in The Fountainhead, uh, which is the only fiction I've read, of this guy who runs a massive uh, newspaper because he wanted power over people. And then he realized, well, when you have power over people, you're actually living for those people. Um, yeah, right. so um, so rational self-interest. And, and the other important piece is rational, right? So a lot of people don't think through rationally. And it's also important to kind of have long-term uh, ideas and goals, right? So sacrificing yourself because it makes you feel good in the moment, um, although it might be you know short-term self-interested in in the way you formulated it is probably not long-term as well. Right, so how, how would an objectivist um, reconcile rational self-interest with having children, for example, who are parasitical in nature and who require you to constantly set aside your own um, desires in the moment to, uh, to address their needs in the moment, I guess? 
Yeah, so that I'm not exactly sure about that. Like, I did ask one question in one of the sessions about like what happens when I have a five-year-old kid and all of a sudden I realize it's not in my self-interest anymore. I'm over this kid, right? right. Um, but it it's, you know, you can want, like if it brings you joy, you can decide that it brings you joy to have these children, right? And you right. also, like responsibility is a big thing for, for you and for them as well. If you make a choice, you have to deal with that choice as well. You can't yeah. just... Um, cause again, it's, it's about a very broad framework of, you know, being honest and having integrity and being self-interested. And so it's probably not in your best interest to ditch a kid at, at you know, age five because they're, they're tiresome. But if you do think it's best for you and the kid, if you're, if you recognize you're a terrible parent, some people do give their kids up for adoption and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But I, I guess I guess what, what I'm trying to get at is that there there seems to be no way to figure out whether an action I'm doing is self-interested or altruistic. Right. If I'm doing well, so something, it's not a it's not a line like it is or it isn't. It's actually up to you to. Right. Like so it's, it's, it's so not it's prescriptive. Yeah. So it's a completely subjective uh, thing. Right. It's it's all about my inner experience, whether that makes this action either self-interested or not, it seems to me. Right. Like, um, yeah, I mean, is there any other way to put it or? Well, it would be I, I honestly don't know. Right. Like I'm not I'm not the right person to be asking uh, this to. Um, and like I said, I'm not converted to it proper. Right. Like, um, like, I mean, one could imagine having kids. One could imagine taking a bullet for your buddy in a war situation. One could imagine. Well, well if that's uh, altruistic, then what about, uh, laying down my life for my kids, uh, you know, in a situation like that, or what about even what I did with the libertarian party where I, where I traded in my <laughs> pension to run for office, knowing that I was never going to win. There was, you know, so in, but, but to me, living a life of purpose is in my own self-interest. Yeah. It, it brings me meaning. And, and so, and that's is a there, very it, important piece is knowing right. now, what your now, purpose had, is. Right. And now had I gone into that experience thinking that it was because this is a necessary sacrifice for Canada and for the group, for the collective, then maybe in a, in the objectivist mind, then I wouldn't be, uh, I, I would, that would be altruistic. So, so again, mm -hmm. the, the difference between those two scenarios is my inner state and my subjective experience of my inner state. Uh, rather than the things I'm doing in objective re material reality necessarily. Right. And so I think objectivism, it's not saying it doesn't say that every single situation within you is like prescriptively objective. Right. right. Like, I don't think that that would be rational at all. It's more so that there is an objective reality and there's objective processes to deal with that reality. Um, right. Well, I, but I'm each... not so sure about that. I, I bet you they would say that there is uh, there. And, and I think I would agree with them here that there is an objectively better way to think uh, about your inner state. Yes. That results in better outcomes, uh, a more, you know, worthwhile life or something like that. Than, yeah, than I others, agree. Right? But it's it. But so it's it's a more of a framework than specific situations. Right. So you and I can be in two situations and our contexts are different. Right. So context is very important as well. Um, you know, we, we can both 
uh, get someone pregnant tomorrow and our context is very different was whether or not, uh, you know, that was a good decision and whether or not we want to have that child, right? So um, my, I want to be a father, right? You want to be a father as well, but you have right. to factor in all of the context and really know whether or not it's in your self-interest and, and what you want. And I mean, the first step that, you know, right. a lot of society doesn't do is figuring out your purpose, what meaning you want. Yeah. From yeah. life, and, 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 and this, sure that and this is, is a self-interested one, right? And this is where I, I think I like my framework better. Although I think myself and an objectivist are getting at the same thing. It's basically not lying to yourself. Be honest with yourself mm. about your motivations, about your underlying expectations, and all these kinds of things when you're doing an action. Yeah. And if you're honest with yourself when you are doing an action, if you understand your motivations and reasons for doing it then uh, you're, it, it's likely that it will provide flourishing and value in your life. If, if you're doing it for altruistic reasons, it's likely to cause you suffering. Or, or if you're yeah. likely, if you're doing it because you think you're doing it for others and not yourself, yeah. it's likely to cause you all sorts of, you know, and, and actually this, this could lead right into mental health, right? Because, you know, when I, when I was suffering from PTSD, it was because I had this mindset that I was, doing this for other people and that yeah. my job was to control the outcome of life and death and that if I couldn't do that then I was a failure and, and it led to all sorts of suffering mm. and all the symptoms of PTSD but when I realized that what I should focus on is what I can control and and the value that I bring to the call and that sort of thing then the same action actually made me more mentally healthy I feel yeah. so ever since I, I came to that epiphany instead of those stressors and those calls breaking down my mental health they now i feel build up my mental health above baseline if that makes any sense so yeah that makes sense and i think so they would basically say that you know the latter is objectively better and objectively the right way to look at things because it's the right. truth right but but that experience is subjective to each person you have like there's this concept of focus right you have to focus or not and that's basically the root decision in all human life is to focus on the truth and what is good for you or not and evade and and, and right. be and be miserable but, and so but that's that not, it's objectively that, better and true and the right. like but to deal with that like each experience is subjective until you flip to okay what is the objective best thing i can analyze right now but they right. do like there is an importance of honesty and one thing that came up in one of the sessions um, you know, around duty as anti-morality. So it's this idea that, oh, I have to do this duty because I should, and that's actually morally bad. But um, regardless, in lines with that, there was a, a veteran of the U.S. Air Force, I believe, um, who asked what he should do, what, it, what he should say when people say thank you for your service, because he doesn't feel like he provided a service. He was interested right. in flying fighter jets. He went because he wanted to fly fighter jets and, and like, he did that for himself, but that's right. such a foreign concept to most people who assume it's like a duty to people would only serve the army because they have to or whatever. But so he was like, well, I don't feel like I did service, right? Like I didn't yeah. provide servitude to someone. I did what I wanted to do. And right. that was be in the Air, Air Force. Hey, I could completely relate to this one. And so what was what, what, what did the objectivist tell him he should say? Well, so the, the first response was, it's not like if someone just thanks you on the street, it's not the time to grandstand and f push your right, uh, right, objective right. definitions yes, on someone. 
Yeah. Um, no, but they didn't really have a good answer, actually, uh, in terms of what. Yeah, you in that I've grappled with this, too. Right. Like, you know, we get this and and in the fire service all the time, it's like, thank you for your service. And like, thank you for your sacrifice. It's like, well, you know, it's not like we're farmers or or fishermen <laughs> or something like that. I mean, these guys have a far more dangerous job. They work longer hours. They they you know, truckers are the glue that holds civilization together like. We put wet yeah. stuff on red stuff and have some fun and hang out, you know, like to me, yeah. I, I like I didn't get this because I have some noble duty to sacrifice myself for my community. I did it because I would do this shit for free, man. It's like <laughs> no, no, no one ever thanked me for my service was when I was flying hang gliders off of cliffs in Kelowna or thanked me for my service when I was rock climbing. These I, I love doing adrenaline junkie things. I love doing risky things i mean i get an immense sense of satisfaction from these things and actually i remember like the first serious call i mean the reason i got into this profession was because i wanted to deal with chaos and i wanted to try to see if i could competently deal with it right yeah. and and provide some value and, and deal with the stress and like put myself in a in an intense situation and come out the other side better and uh, I remember the first serious call I was on as a paramedic, it was like a gory car scene where there was all sorts of complex problems to solve. And, you know, a, a few people died in there. But afterwards, I was pumped. I was like, yes, this is what I signed up for. And I thought, OK, we're having a debrief now afterwards. And I thought it was going to be high fives all around and like great job, guys. Yeah, some people died. I mean, we couldn't change that outcome. But I mean, we, you know, we actually brought order to that scene and we did what we were trained to do. Uh, but no, it was everyone with dour face and there was a facilitator there. It was a psychological debrief because we, they were worried about our mental health and all this kind of stuff. And and it changed my perception of my job. Then it was like, oh, shit, I, I have the wrong mental state here. It's a young yeah. guy, right? Early 20s. And uh, that set me up for for mental illness in the, shortly after. Right. Because I. Yeah realized I had to approach my profession from a different mindset. And it's the, the mindset that everyone around me instills in me when they say, thank you for your service and your yeah. duty. Right. And well, I think, I, yeah, I think that's a really good point in, in that, like you wanted to be a firefighter cause it's cool. And you know, you want to deal with chaos and, and have complex situations. Right. And so that is pursuing your interest. Whereas if I were to be a firefighter, it would not be the case. Right. Like <laughs> right. I don't have an interest in that sort of thing. And so that's where the context is so important. There's no objective. Should you be a firefighter or not? Because right. it really depends right. on each person. Um, and then that's when you get into, well, if there was like a draft for the army or firefighters, then it's telling people, oh, you have to do this because society needs you. And and it's like, well, OK, that's different. And then then you kind of contrast your approach with what that is, what a lot of people think like, oh, like we need paramedics. So I'll be a paramedic, uh, uh, even though it's miserable. Maybe I can help one person not die. And like that's their mindset. Um, which isn't a good mindset. And then it is like if, if they go into every situation completely focused on everyone else in the situation, obviously that's not a good mindset when there's people dying all the time, right? Imagine right. if doctors did that as well, right? You yeah. know, people die on them every day or every week. And if they're only focused, they're not focused on themselves and the good they can do and achieve for themselves. If they're just focused on saving everyone, they're going to be miserable because they can't, right? 
And so mm -hmm. in these extreme situations, in these extreme professions, it, the contrast of just the mindset difference is very evident. Listeners of this podcast get a risk-free two-week trial with Chad Kirkham at The Warrior Path. Check it out, guys. I was coming off a stint in management uh, when I signed up for The Warrior Path, and I was pretty soft. I'm not going to lie to you, David. <laughs> I was uh, out of shape. I was huffing, and I had to come back to the floor, kick in doors, hump hose, fight fire, and I needed to get into shape. And Chad Kirkham at the Warrior Path definitely got me into shape. Uh, you know, I've, I've never felt better, to be honest. And he had an app that tracked the progress. I sent videos to him. Uh, it, was, it was a really slick application, actually. I, I would send videos. He'd correct my form, send me little tips and, and videos. And, uh, and whenever, whenever I needed, he was available. And I'll tell you, I, I put on, I think, about 50% on all my personal records in about a two month period uh, working with the warrior path. And so objectivism argues that it's kind of been bred into us over the past hundred years. It's very collective of, of, of a mentality. Um, right. And particularly like it kind of has its roots from Kant and from Christianity of like this idea that you have to sacrifice the, uh, um, right. and that kind and, of thing. And that kind of makes some sense, uh, you know, if you, Think about um, uh, like an altruistic culture, right? Um, the way you would get resources in an altruistic culture is to be a victim. And so that yeah. might help explain why there's such a huge victim mentality through yeah. endemic in all levels of society right now. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, I sacrifice to you, you sacrifice to him, he sacrifices to him. Right. Who, who gets something? And right. so it's like the idea it's always is the that victims. Yeah, and so the idea is whoever's advocating for altruism for a collectivist society like that, they want power because it's like who everyone's sacrificing, right. who's collecting? Someone has to collect, right? Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't just disappear. Um, but the the other reason objectivism is cool and and you know I I enjoy it as it it's a very it has a good institutional framework and it's a broader philosophy than I've seen like because we spent a lot of time talking about art as well like the hmm. objective value of art, the philosophical value of art. And I've never even heard about like heard of that from a philosophical point of view generally. But so it's more than just like the political philosophy, right? So like in terms of ad, like, I think they're well situated to kind of push the liberty framework forward well, because they have a good institution in place. They have tons of content that Ayn Rand generated, right? Like, right. so I think they're they're well positioned and it's like, you know, uh, you know, I connected you with Gloria Alvarez, who she's not an objectivist. Uh, you know, she's somewhere in that liberty framework, still figuring it, figuring it out. But she's right. trying to unite all of the liberty-based people in Guatemala, right? There's mm -hmm. not that many, apparently. I like but, it. But it's like, you know, we can't, you know, you said you united the, the liberty movement in Canada because, yeah, we're going to disagree about the last 10% of things. But the 90% is much more important. And, and yeah. so in terms of advancing that, I think they're doing great work. Um, and I still don't know, like there's a few things that I went in disagreeing with and, and I still disagree with. Um, actually, they, they did change my mind on abortion a bit, but that was not at the conference. That was just, I had a discussion with my friend on the way back and then read an objectivist article about it. 
Um, and so that we can get into that maybe a different uh, time. I, uh, I need to know now. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, so in our earlier abortion episode, like I was very much of the mindset that like, you know, there is a life at some point and, and so it cannot be aborted at eight months, at, at eight and a half months, right? Right. Um, but there's, you know, this more fundamental idea of your rights only extend as far as they don't impinge on, infringe on my rights. So right. um, this right of the baby, even if it is a baby, like let's say it's a real live baby at eight and a half months, but it's still in this woman's stomach. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have rights in such that it can infringe on the mother's rights. So right. the mother has no desire, no need to do anything right. for that baby. The same way if you had a homeless person in your house, right? Their yeah. rights in your house do not stop you from kicking them out from, I mean, in right. some states, killing them if they refuse to leave your property, right? Um, yeah. I, I so, was thinking about this and actually the, a better analogy would be you in, invite a homeless person into your house and then, well, let, let, let's assume this, assume yeah. that you invite the homeless person into your house and the only way to get them out of your house is to kill them, cut them up, and shove them through an exit hole or something like that. Yeah. Um, and at what point would you be justified in killing them and shoving them through the exit hole? Would it be when they start poking you in the belly a little bit and you don't like it? Would it be when they start stretching your belly out irreparably and shifting your internal organs around? Uh, at some point, you probably would be justified in killing that person, cutting them out, and shoving them through the exit hole. Yeah. Uh, so so I, could kind of, I, I do kind of have some sympathy uh, to, to that perspective, yeah, so, I guess. But so it did change my perspective a bit because, like, I do think at some point that baby would have rights prior to nine months. But yeah. and, and so again, they wouldn't argue it's necessarily morally right, right? Like, right. and that's the big differentiation that's important. That it, it was clear, it was easy for me to make with regards to drugs and prostitution, but not with abortion. But there's a difference between what is morally right and what should be legal, right? Yeah. And so. I, I, I still believe and I think objectivism from what I interpreted would still believe it's morally wrong to abort an eight month gestated baby. But that doesn't mean the state should prevent you from doing it um, right. the same way the state shouldn't prevent you from shooting up heroin. Right. Um, and yeah, so and, and, and that's kind of where I, where I come down on it, too. It's like, a, you know, it's like a legislating a hostage situation or something like that, too. Yeah, but it, I guess it's even a little different than that because it's uh, yeah, well, per, but it's a person, right? So that's why yeah. you know, in our our you know a month or two ago, I had thought, okay, no, there should be legislation to protect the baby's life when we can scientifically and philosophically determine it is alive. Um, but I don't, yeah. I I no longer think that's the case, at least for now. Um, but again, we didn't really talk. This wasn't coming yeah. at the conference. Um, I just had a twenty-minute or thirty-minute debate with a friend of mine on the way home. So then I decided to look up, um, you know, what they had thought about it, and it did a very good job of of delineating morality right. from legality. Yeah, and and the other thing too, I was thinking about is that most pro-lifers draw the same kind of artificial distinction about when that is is a person uh that that pro-choicers do you know pro-choicers generally say they're, they're not a person until they're actually exit their mom right at birth that's the moment well obviously that like what's the difference between someone two minutes after birth and someone two minutes before birth there's nothing yeah. other than their location um yeah but 
you know, a, a pro-lifer will say, well, obviously the moment that per- that is a person is at conception. Well, why is it conception? That just seems like an arbitrary line too. And it, it's a continuum too. It's not like there's a moment of conception, right? Like yeah. conception is a process um, that, that occurs over a period of time uh, as the sperm penetrates and DNA mingle. And it's like, and, you know, eventually it splits. At what point there is it a person is it when the d the sperm and egg touch is it when the dna is injected is it when the thing splits is it when it implants like wherever you choose it is you're you're picking an arbitrary line i thought well couldn't the same argument be made to say that each sperm is a person yeah you know because by they, they generally say that 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 um fertilized egg or that that conception at that moment is when you have the potential for a human is that you, you can't say it's not a human life because it's got human genome. That's their first argument, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's a human genome. It's not a, not a non-human life. It's, it's life and it's human. Yeah. So they, they say it has to be a person, but can't you say the same thing about sperm? It's, it's human life. It, yeah. it will grow into a fully mature adult. If you apply the right conditions, if a third party does all the right things, that will become a fully mature human, just like that egg will, uh, yeah. or that fertilized egg. So, so isn't it then genocide to ejaculate yeah. since you're prematurely well, killing a bunch of people? Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, so in the in the article I read, um, and I can put a link at the bottom for anyone who's interested. Um, he the, the the author goes through some other examples, not as extreme as as uh, conception or sperm, but of when people claim life or not. So it's around like, you know, when it can feel pain and, uh, you know, and when it has receptors and this kind of thing. And he said, actually, that the pro-life movement by make by arguing on those terms is actually starting to lose. Right. Because then they're basically saying, oh, well, that's not life as if if it was, then we would be able to force women to to have their pregnancy. Right. So it's like, well, that's not even the right thing for the pro-life movement to debate at all. It doesn't matter when if if it's life at 10 weeks or not right it matters there's like a different framework and they they present it in a much better way than i'll be able to right now but he says um and it's similar to some of the other things that like uh you know libertarian libertarians need to change the framework of the conversation right right um because it's like oh uh, you know, if, if they if they draw some arbitrary line and we just say, well, no, that line is wrong, then we're right. implying that if there was a different line, their premises yeah. would still be valid. Right. Well, and so and, that's and, the and, most important thing. Yeah. And this is my argument with, you know, this is why I'm disappointed in Bernier's latest climate policy, where he says, basically, you know, we don't have to do any kind of climate action because there's no consensus or, or there's no evidence that that catastrophe is coming. Right. Mm-hmm. So the implication there is that a catastrophe is coming. Well, then obviously we need yeah. government. Well, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. if catastrophe is coming, we need, maybe we need Liberty. Like maybe it's imperative for the world that we get Liberty now yeah. to, to protect us from climate catastrophe. Uh, so I make the argument that, yeah, if catastrophe is coming, that just ramps up our imperative to get Liberty now. Yeah. Uh, rather than later, right? But, uh, you and know, so, so on, yeah, I agree with this guy anyways. Yeah, and so on that uh, topic as well, we heard from Alex Epstein, uh, mm, who, yeah, he wrote great. The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, right? Yeah. So he worked for ARI, he's an objectivist, and now mm-hmm. he's out there trying to put these things in, into 
uh, into action. And so it was quite interesting. He did a, a session on his, on the moral case for fossil fuels generally, which I would definitely encourage anyone to check out. It's, it's interesting. Um, and he also did one on uh, intellectual persuasion. And so like specifically on yep. how to change the framework and or at least establish a similar framework. Um, and he kind of walked through his process of trying to change people's minds, especially when it's something like liberty versus collectivism. Right. Because mm. it's not like we're arguing left versus right where we have the same context. We're literally having conversations with people that they've never even thought of the framework exactly. at all. Yeah. yeah. And so it's such a difficult thing. And it's something you and I, I'm new to the, all of this. So it's something you and I have struggled with as well of just me at least getting out of my default mindset of what is the liberty policy. Right. Right. Um, and so he does a very good job of like walking through. OK, it's first about establishing the framework properly. And he said, actually, for climate change, he finds that is so much more important and so much more beneficial because um, he basically argues that we need to have a framework of human flourishing, not a framework of human uh, of minimal impact. Right. Because yep. when you have and uh, and that's what people are arguing for now is minimal impact. And you see it's not even CO2. It's like the people who are against green uh, against fossil fuels are also against nuclear and hydro because those impact those could impact the environment. Right. Right. Um, so it's just that was pretty interesting as well. Yeah. Epstein's great. I, uh, I he actually put me in a triangle chokehold once. Little known fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, How did he, that uh, come about? Well, I, I brought my uh, my buddy who was training me to fight Justin Trudeau. He, he's a ex UFC fighter. And yeah. I brought him to Epstein speak in Calgary and uh, Epstein recognized him because he's a big MMA fan. Yeah. And so we ended up going to an MMA gym afterwards and doing some uh, jujitsu. Okay. <laughs> Epstein's pretty good. I think he's a black belt. So Very he nice. manhandled me pretty handy. <laughs> Very nice. Um, yeah. So we can go a little bit longer if you have any other questions about the objectivism. Like, because it, it was an interesting conference. The The concerns I had going in Right. Like I didn't actually end up talking with too many of the other um, attendees. Right? right. Like I went to the sessions. I talked to some of the speakers afterwards and I kind of did my own thing because um, yeah. I did get not that they were dogmatic as much as I thought. But right. I didn't care to debate these things with other people who also hadn't thought them through properly. Right. right. So they were very adamant in their views or they weren't. And either way, I didn't see it as bringing much mm -hmm. value to me. Um, but I was surprised at how uh, non-dogmatic the speakers were, at least for the most mm. part. Yeah. Though I, I was a bit frustrated by what seemed to be this air of objectivism is done, right? Like mm. Ayn Rand created it and now it's about continuing to reinterpret that. Um, and it I, I could be wrong, but that's the, the impression I got. It's that Ayn, like objectivism is only to be discovered from her past not grown for the future. Right, right, right. Um, I could be wrong and that could just be, you know, the speeches I heard or something like that. But those were the two kind of biggest takeaways for me. In addition to me thinking that the Ayn Rand Institute itself is, I mean, I'm a big fan of the CEO now. Like he, he seemed to really know how to kind of grow the movement and, and why it's so valuable. Um, yeah. So it was very interesting overall. And, I, and I'm impressed by the institution itself. Um, if not, if if not fully bought into the philosophy uh, as a yeah. whole. Well, yeah, and I think that you know objectivism, like the axioms 
are fairly unassailable, right? Like the, mm-hmm. there's no, you know, so the work I think that needs to be done is, for example, determining maybe where the line is, wh- when we can consider an action in force initiation in certain special circumstances, right? Like, for example, you know, light coming from my neighbor's house, at what point does that light become, uh, violate my property? Is it when the porch light spills over and reflects onto my uh, yard? Is it when, or is it when a million watt laser beam is fired at my house from my neighbors? Like, okay, probably not the porch light. Yes, for sure, the laser, but somewhere in between that power crosses over the line into um, initiating force, right? Yeah. And so where is that and how would we determine that? I think that that kind of, those kind of things are where maybe more work needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and a real difficult continuum problem is with children, for example, right? So when, at, at what point do, do we say that children no longer require custodianship and can consent to things like doing drugs or having sex and different things like that. Like, you know, we kind of draw this, we draw a line in the sand that's relatively arbitrary. We say when you're 18, that's when you can consent to yeah. these things. Well, what, what's the difference between someone two minutes after they turn 18 versus two minutes before they turn 18? Yeah. Like what, what magic has happened there. Right. And so I, but I think objectivism and libertarians, they could do some work on, mm-hmm. Where is that? Right. And I think ultimately, you know, uh, it, it's like the scientific method. It's it's it, yeah. it's probably best done in decentralized courts, trying to uh, look at natural law or objectivist law, trying to discover where that lies in the context of this particular dispute. And that over time narrows in closer and closer on where that line of force initiation is. So I think there's no doubt that there has to be a line, that it has to be objective. uh, But sometimes there are areas where it's difficult to discern exactly where that is. It's a little bit foggy. And I think more work can be done to clear that up. Yeah. And I think that they see from my like, again, I'm, I'm new to this, but from my impression, it seems like that's where they're starting to shift towards is actually talking more about these practical issues. Because, um, you know, it is still a fairly new school of philosophy and, and a lot of the intellectuals were more so focused on understanding it and the, the you know, the five core tenets. Um, right. And, and right. now, uh, you know, they seemed to be interested in kind of bringing those the applications of the philosophy and the school of thought to more mainstream issues, to issues that young people care about and to to like things that are more, you know, uh, pressing in the real world, let's say, um, mm-hmm. rather than, and I think they have a good framework to approach it, right? So I am interested to see how the school of thought develops over the next decade. And if, you know, if we end up being a part of it from, you know, a liberty or, or an objective uh, framework as well, because I think there is room, uh, it'll be interested to see how protectionist they are around right. Ayn Rand's objectivism, let's say. Right, right. Um, I think that will be extremely interesting. Yeah, well, I, I I consider myself essentially an objectivist, right? Like, I yeah. think th- there, there's objective morality. And uh, I think I agree with all of the axioms, I think, of, of objectivism. And in fact, it was those axioms that brought me to the conclusion that, that we can't have a state. <laughs> like, um, you know, you simply, th- there you can't delegate uh, 
like objectivists are right. You can't delegate a right that you don't have to someone else. And, mm. and the government is, is de defined as an, a group of individuals has a, that have rights that no one else has at the very least they have the well, right so to, to prevent any kind of, um, uh, competitor, right from providing the services they're providing. Well, so objectivism, their politics is that the government only has the right to protect the individual's liberty, right? So that right. is a right you have, and so you delegate that. So there is an organization that protects me from you infringing on my property rights rather than me having to do it myself all of the time. Sure, uh, but 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 would they- Rather than me needing to hire a security force that does right. that. Right, but would they be opposed from me uh, going with a different government and delegating my right to a different government, right? Uh, so potentially a different government, but not necessarily a different organization, right? So it's, let's say maybe it's like the default provider. So you can still, you know, hire a private security force or create a private security force that does okay. it for you. But there's still um, a group of people that are the default provider. What if I want to be, start a group and be the default provider that does exactly the same thing? Would that group use force to prevent me from doing that, right? Well, so and, I, I and think- by what right do they have that? So I think that's the only case then would be the default provider who provides it when you don't want it, when you right. don't get your own. Um, so but that I just think, sounds like anarcho-capitalism because I, I, I couldn't see under what sense that would be called a government versus a, a private security force or dispute resolution organization or something like right. that. And, right. And so, so maybe it's just a semantic disagreement. Yeah. And for me, it's really like the fringe, like it is like a quite close difference, if any at all. Right. Cause it's just like, and I don't know the exact answer, but I think for me, at least, like, it's not going to convince me one way or the other to call myself an objectivist or not. Cause this is right. like, if we get to a point where this is what we need to figure out, I'm more than happy. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's fair enough but i don't know um you know exactly what the difference is one thing one last thing i want to note is the idea of like ayn rand fandom right mm -hmm. so they did just to completely switch topics on you um but i want to get this in um because you know there i like there was like ayn rand trivia right and some people are like super nerdy about ayn rand herself um and like fanboys and i i don't get that but i was also uh, impressed that a lot of other people didn't understand it. Like, why would I just be obsessed with this lady? Right? Like, yeah, she's really smart, but it's not like I, it's not like physicists also spend time memorizing about all of Einstein's life. Right? Um, so there are some people like that. And there was some people, you know, who were quite, you know, about Ayn Rand. Um, but I, I was happy that it wasn't as many as I expected. Right. Nice. Hey, let me ask you this. Have you, uh, have you, was, was there any uh, workshops or conferences or, or lectures there on psychology at all? There, there were two on psychology, but I didn't go to them because mm. uh, I was of the belief that I had already accomplished. Like one was focused on, you know, motivation by love instead of motivation by fear. And right. the other one was on being like radically honest with yourself. And I didn't go to either of those because I'm generally quite good uh, at both of those now. Um, yeah. But yeah, they, they did have a couple. And, and from, you know, the peers that I know that went to those, they found them hugely beneficial. Right. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have much uh, yeah. insight on those. Well, and I think, you know, objectivism has a lot to say. I think that there's a lot of potential there in the psychological realm, right? Like yeah. Being 
completely honest with ourselves, um, making sure the story in our head that triggers all these emotions in us is the correct story yeah. is, is hugely important. And um, I'd recommend uh, reading some Nathaniel Brandon if you want to explore objectivist psychology a bit more brandon uh, have you read any of his stuff or? i i haven't you recommended him and so actually yeah. that's funny because like he's like a taboo su- a word right like because oh, right? he caused a rift in objectivism he betrayed ayn rand so oh, when you mention yeah. him they have like a, a like a they don't like it uh it seemed um i did have a conversation with a, a psychologist who was there after one of the sessions um she's the one who did the thing about radical honesty or whatever um, and yeah, I, I asked her about Nathaniel Brandon and she was like, yeah, sure. Um, but like they're dismissive of him, right. um, it seems because he, uh. he, yeah, he like betrayed and there was like a, a, a rift in objectivism at the time. So there's still these like this, that like uh, cult of personality-esque uh, right. traits. But I, on, on your note, I do think like objectivism has so many things that are in line with our, what are now seen as like psychological best practices, psychotherapeutic practices. Um, and it's really mm-hmm. because they've just kind of like built out a very natural framework of human thought, it seems, right? right. Um, and so I think it'll be very interesting over the next few decades. I hope that, you know, and, and this is one of my many plans, is to be able to kind of ground psychology in an objective framework Um and really unite psychology and figure out what's working and what's true. Because the, the schools of psychology in every sub theme, I, I even met with a psychologist a few, like an academic psychologist a few weeks ago, and he said, well, his area of study is this silo. And right. so he doesn't know anything outside this silo. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really help if we're trying to understand the human brain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be interesting because I think it has like that philosophic, uh, wider framework and wider lens it could be an interesting starting point to try and you know bring psychological best practices from well, there's a lot of expertise out there and there's a lot of non-expertise out there and it's just kind of exploded everywhere so it'll be interesting to see how that starts to unify or or whatever uh over the next oh, over the next uh decades Cool. Well, it sounds like uh, it was a productive conference. We don't have yeah. uh, any objective answers about objectivism, but it sounds like, uh, you know, there there certainly are allies. Um, you know, I, I consider them uh, to be really at the root of libertarianism. You know, these mm-hmm. objective uh, hard lines of discernible morality um, and applying these principles universally rather than arbitrarily and all these kinds of things. That that comes, um, you know, objectivism really helped crystallize those things. And, and I think that, um, you know, we're doing mostly the same work in the yeah. libertarian party. Right. So and and so. fundamentally, it's about, uh, you know, property rights and that yep. prop free property and free enterprise are inseparable from free thought. Right. They're, right. they're one in the same. And those are those are the things that matter and that we need to get people to understand. Right. Very cool. cool.